uh, C.S. Lewis, who is a brilliant uh, scholar, became a Christian later in his life, became a great Christian apologist, and he wrote many wonderful books, uh, none probably more famous than Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Or listen to Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. You know, so often the problems that we have in life, that we see in our culture, that we see in relationships, we can trace back to a root of pride or arrogance, a prideful heart. The Bible warns us of this many times. And so this idea of pride, and if if we just go to the definition of what it is, this idea of pride is just the feeling of satisfaction derived from one's own achievement. And as I say that, and and maybe you hear that definition, I I like to define our terms when we're talking about different things like this, when we're talking about pride, a feeling of satisfaction derived from one's own achievement. You may say, well, that's not really a bad thing, is it? It's not evil. Um, In fact, depending on the context, it may not be bad at all. I was thinking about this feeling of satisfaction derived from one's own achievement. Uh, I think each week, uh, probably not every week, but a lot of weeks, I work on my youngest son's vocabulary with him because he has a vocabulary test on Friday and we quiz and we go over the words and we talk about it and he spells them back and we go over the definition and then uh, he'll come home and I'll say, well, how did you do on your vocabulary test? And I'll go, dad, I got a hundred. And we went over it and I nailed it. I got a hundred. It's like, great. And there's a, there's a, a sense of satisfaction because he worked at it and he made sure he knew him and we quizzed him and we went over it and he went and he did well. And so there's a good pride in the sense of taking pride in your work, the things that you're doing and doing them with integrity and doing them with excellence. And that is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens when pride becomes this kind of arrogance where it starts to slide into our identity and our identity starts to stem from our performance Who I am is based on how well I'm doing in these different areas. And then suddenly it starts to slide into a self-righteousness. Look at how good I am. Look at how well I'm doing. And this arrogance starts to kind of well up in us and it erases all humility. I think that's what the Proverbs is talking about when it talks about uh, when pride comes, there is disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And what happens is what C.S. Lewis tells us. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And suddenly we, we, we've embraced the self-righteousness of this is who I am and I've accomplished this and I've done these things and I start to look down on other people. And when that happens and it starts to slide into our relationship with God, it distorts everything that the Bible tells us about who God is and who we are and the way we're made to love other people. It turns uh, the good news of what God has done for us completely upside down and puts ourselves at the center and it causes all sorts of issues. And so this issue that is in the heart of all of us has been kind of underlying some of the questions we've been looking at in Romans 9 and 10 and even as we go into 11 today. And if you've been with us, one of the underlying questions that Paul asks at the beginning of chapter 9 in Romans is he asks this question, or he anticipates his audience having this question. And the question is this, why are so many Israelites, God's chosen people, not believing in Jesus as the Messiah? Why have so many missed it? And so he's, he's kind of fleshing that out for us as we've been working our way through chapter 9 and chapter 10 and now getting into chapter 11. 
And so last week we were talking about how God is sovereign over all things, but yet he chooses to work through the means of people, right? That God is sovereign, but he chooses to work through us, right? And so we just read just a moment ago, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so God saves and he is sovereign over salvation, but yet he chooses to work through people. We talked about that last week, that balance of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, But if faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, look at what he then says in verse 18. But I ask you, have they not heard? These people, the Israelites that have known who God was and the covenants and all that God's given them, have they not heard? Because faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And he says, yes, they've heard. The voice has gone out. And basically all the Israelites at this time have now heard of who Jesus is. They've heard the message. But yet so many are still not believing. And so when we start to think about this, how does God's sovereignty work? How does our responsibility work? And part of it is that God is sovereign, but he gives us real choices with real consequences. And one of the underlying themes uh, at the bottom of so many missing who the Messiah is within Israel that we keep coming back to our real choices with real consequences. There's a problem there. And we've been saying this as we've been going through it. And there's this problem of pride that's down at the bottom of our hearts. And you see that in Israel. They became prideful about being God's chosen people. And they became prideful about their nationality. And they became prideful about their works. Salvation was through what they were doing. And all these things that they had taken on. And so as we think about this idea today, it's something that we all need to hear. And Paul's going to say that. He's going to talk about Israel and their history. And there's kind of a, a warning through, through Israel and what they've been doing. But then he's going to turn and dress all of us. And he's going to say to all of us, be careful of this. Because a prideful heart is something that can sneak up on every one of us because of our sinfulness. And it's always kind of there lurking in the background. And so what I want us to think about today in this idea of that, that pride is a killer in a whole lot of ways. And our relationship with God and how we truly love others. And so as we think about this, this is the way I want us to look at it. We're going to look at the end of chapter 10 and we're going to see this warning from Israel's history. Paul's going to bring up and he's going to quote a few things from the Old Testament. There's a warning there from Israel's history. But then the second thing, he's going to turn and address all of us. And he's going to say that you Gentiles that have now been brought in, don't do the same thing that they've done. And so he's going to turn and address all of us. And then the last thing I want us to consider is that we're all susceptible to this. How does Jesus save us from this? How does Jesus save us from this danger of a prideful, arrogant heart? And so let's just start with the warning that he gives to Israel. We're going to pick up in chapter 10. We stopped last week right at verse 17. That's right where we're going to pick up again this week. But before we do, I just want to kind of set the table a couple of things. I say this regularly. If you've been at Church of the Apostles for any length of time, I often like to define my terms. So I'll say a lot, and and I hope you've heard this, and I do this on purpose. It's not because I forget. I want to say I very deliberately say it because I want us not to take for granted things we hear within the church. For example, I say all the time, sin is ignoring God in the world he created, or rebelling against God in his world. Sin is first against God. And so I say that all the time. And I hope you go, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I know that. I've thought about that because I don't want us to take for granted those things. And so I say the same thing with grace. We are saved by grace through faith and what Jesus has done. Grace is undeserved merit. 
We are getting something that we have not earned. We do not deserve that God has graciously given us, right? Through his mercy, he's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He's given it to us by us not earning it because it's undeserved. And so grace, by definition, is getting something that we haven't earned. And so I want you to think about this for just a moment, which, by the way, that definition, I think, is very biblical. And I think it's what Paul says here, right, in chapter 11, right? Like if you look at chapter 11, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's pretty straightforward if you think about it, right? Like if you, if you can't earn it and it's something you haven't earned, it can't then be by your works. And as soon as you attribute it to your works, it's no longer grace. And so that's exactly what Paul says in verse six, undeserved merit. Now, how does that fit with pride? If pride is satisfaction derived from one's own achievement, but grace is getting something that you haven't earned, how do those go together? And the answer is they don't. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. They don't go together. As soon as you start to well up with pride of looking what I've accomplished, you're no longer operating in the grace that you've received. You've made it about you. And we're all susceptible of this. It's a struggle for every single one of us because of the sinfulness of our heart. And so the Bible reminds us of this over and over and over again. Be careful. Right? Just read through the Proverbs. There are so many Proverbs that address pride and arrogance over and over and over again. Or you could go through Romans, what we've looked at. Paul's already addressed this in chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, for although, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what he says there in chapter 1 is we start to forget God. And we start to go, I've done this and I'm pretty good. And look at what I've accomplished. And we start to forget him and we start to make it all about us. And I don't need God to define things for me. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And so the Bible reminds us of this over and over. And so as we start, I just want to make sure that we say that grace and pride don't go together. If we're operating, if we're, we're seeing our identity from the grace that God has given us and we're living out of that, there's no place for us to be proud or arrogant. And as soon as we do, we're forgetting who we are and what God has done for us. Now, that said, I want you to look at what Paul is saying here about Israel and their history. And so go back to verse 17. So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, does Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous for those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all the day long, I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. And so I want us just to think about what Paul's doing there. And he does this a lot. He goes back and and regularly he's quoting from the Old Testament and he's bringing out how God has revealed himself and the way he's been working. And he'll point back to these things over and over again. And that's what he's doing here. And he's pointing us back to Deuteronomy. And that first quote there in verse 18, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Or I'm sorry, in, in verse 19 there, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. 
And he's pointing back to something that Moses said to the people of Israel. Now, if you know what Deuteronomy is, it's helpful here to understand. Deuteronomy is really two big long addresses by Moses right at the end of his life. And it's right before Israel will go into the land of Canaan, the the promised land that God's given them. They're right there on the edge and they're about to go in. And Moses calls everybody together and he's reminding them of all the things that God has done. It's kind of summarizing. And he's telling them, this is who God is and this is what he's done. And here's where he blew it. And don't do that again. And he's telling them all these things in Deuteronomy. And so if you read through that address and what he's telling them, he's going back through Israel's history. And in Deuteronomy chapter seven, He's quoting God and he says that God chose you not because you were greater than anybody else, not because you were a great nation, not because you were had it more together. And he basically says he chose you because he loved you and he loved you because he loved you. And the reason he loved you is because he chose you and he made a promise to your forefathers. And so basically what he's saying is God chose you and he's been working through you because God is faithful and he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And Moses is reminding them of that. He's saying it's all God's doing and it's all his grace to you. And he's warning Israel throughout Deuteronomy that you keep forgetting that. And as soon as you forget that, and as soon as you start to attribute who you are and what you've done to your own doing, rather than seeing God's mercy and grace to you, you're in trouble. And so you get to Deuteronomy 32 and he's saying that. It's actually a song in chapter 32 that Moses is singing over the people. It's very poetic. And he's reminding them of all these things. And if you read in Deuteronomy 32 in context, like verse 10, it says, uh, what is he, uh, uh, sorry, he found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and he cared for him and he kept him as the apple of his eye. And so he's talking about God to Israel. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. And so Moses is singing this song and he's reminding them of what is true of them. God took you out of nothing and he's taken care of you and he's made you into a great nation and he's done all these things. And then he gets down towards the end of the song in verse 21 and he says, and this is what Paul is then quoting here. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. And so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And so he's reminding them of their history and how there's these ups and downs throughout Israel. God saves them and he takes care of them and he brings them out. And then the people grumble and complain and they go after other idols. They forget And this forgetfulness and this arrogance comes in. And so God calls other people in and he does these things and God is sovereign all the way through it and he's working. And yes, there's real choices with real consequences, but yet God is sovereign over all of it. And so what he's saying to them over and over, and it's what Paul's quoting here, is their hardness of heart that comes when they become arrogant, when they become proud, when they forget what God has done for them. And so just what Paul is quoting here was that was Moses's whole point as you go through Deuteronomy. And so God is working and then he he then quotes from Isaiah and he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me and I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And Paul's pulling these things together and he's saying that's what God's doing right now. That Israel has hardened its heart towards God and in their arrogance 
in their pride of being a nation, in their pride of their works, they're missing what God has done in Jesus. And he's reminding them of that. And he's saying in their missing it, God's now pulling people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And he's bringing people in just as he would do in the Old Testament in their arrogance. He calls other people in to bring them back. And so God is faithful all the way through this. But there's this struggle that they're having. They're missing it because of their pride. They're missing it because of their arrogance. They're missing it because of their forgetfulness. They're seeing themselves as who they are based on what they've done rather than who God is and what he's done for them. And so Paul's reminding them of this. And so when he quotes Isaiah, when he pulls all these things together, he's showing us that now God is working to bring in every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's blessing the world. And it's not just Israel. Now, sometimes, and this is kind of my pet peeve, we will come back to this next week. People will say, well, see, Israel blew it, and so God went to plan B and started to call other people. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Depends on the way you see a bunch of things in the Bible. But kind of like, this was the first plan, they blew it, now he... I think that's not true. And I'll tell you why I think it's not true. Because God's original promise to Israel, to Abraham, the father of the Israelites, the father of the Jewish nation, was I'm going to take you and I'm going to give you a great number of descendants and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to make you into this great nation and then I'm going to bless the world through your seed, the seed being Jesus. The plan was always to call people in from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It wasn't like God went, oh, no, Israel blew it, so I'll leave them and then go over here. He was always going to do that. He was always sovereignly calling people from the ends of the earth. Paul is telling us this is how he's doing it right now in your hardness of heart to the Israelites. Do you see? So God is sovereign, and he's using their real choices with real consequences, but God is still sovereign over this. But here's the underlying thing. They were struggling because they became arrogant. They became proud. They started to see who they were based on nationality and their works and all these things other than God's mercy to them. Now, chapter 11, 1 down to about verse 16, he starts talking about how God is going to bring Israelites back, that he's not done with them. In fact, Paul even asked the question, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now this goes back to chapter 9 and everything we said. Not all of Israel is Israel. God has a remnant of people. Just because they were ethnically part of the the, uh, Jewish nation, they were Israelites, didn't mean they had a saving relationship with God. Not all of Israel is Israel. And Paul's saying that's still the case. I'm an Israelite. And I have come to faith and I'm clinging to Jesus and God has been faithful. And he says, there's still a remnant and there will always be a remnant. And God is doing that. But then he also hints at that God's going to bring a greater number of Israelites back in. That he's going to work and bring many back in to the fold. And that's kind of underneath this. Now I'm going to say, yes, I think that is true, but I'm going to leave that there for this week. I'm going to come back to that next week. Because there's a lot to unpack there. Well, how God's doing that and what does that mean that he's going to call Israelites back and how's that going to work? And so the big part I would just say to you is that not all of Israel is Israel and God is faithful and he is faithful over salvation and he hasn't lost any. But he does seem to suggest that more are going to come back into the fold. 
And so we'll come back to that next week. But let's just summarize what he's saying there in that first part of chapter 11 with verses 11 and 12. Look at what it says. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means for the world, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And so he says, some have fallen away and that they're not holding fast. And so God's going to bring in Gentiles and that's going to make them jealous. And he's going to use all of this to bring more Israelites back in. And God's going to get the glory for this. And God is sovereign over this. And so he's making that argument. Now I'm going to leave that and we will come back to that next week. But what I want us to do is then see what he turns and says to the Gentiles in light of all this. We're now benefiting as a Gentile, as a non-Jewish person, we're benefiting from their hardness of heart and their arrogance. God is so great that he can use all this. And so look at what he says beginning in verse 17 as he turns to address the Gentiles. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, he's talking about the Gentiles here, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear for if God does not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So he says a lot there. But at the heart of what he's saying, and I want us to see this, and this is kind of where we're, we're, we're we're sharpening the point this morning. The heart of what he's saying there is that God in his sovereignty has used their hardness to bring you in. And God is working and he's called you into it. But don't you dare make the same mistake that they made and become proud. Don't you dare say, look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I did. He says, don't go there. Don't start to fall back into that type of thinking. And he's warning us of that because here you have this long history of this happening in Israel. But he's warning us of that because what's happening in Israel is a condition of man's sinful heart that we're all susceptible to. That we can start to think, look at what I've done. Now, Luke read for us right at the beginning this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Jesus. And we say this all the time when we talk about Ephesians 2. What can a dead man do? It's not a trick question. Nothing, right? You can't cause yourself to become alive. I mean, think about Hopefully you haven't seen it in person, but maybe you've seen it on a television show. Somebody's heart stops beating, right? The EMS shows up and they pull out the paddles and they shock them back to get their heart going. 
And they come back and they, they get them back and they start doing CPR. And now the person that was just moments ago dead, right? Their heart had stopped. They're not breathing. They shock them back and they come back. Who in that instant goes, look at what I just did. I just saved myself. No one, right? No one says that. You know that if it wasn't for this intervention, you would still be laying there not breathing with your heart not beating. The same is true for us spiritually speaking. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy causes us to become alive. Or or Titus 3. I always put Titus 3 and Ephesians 2 together because Paul uses almost the same way of speaking. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. What happened in Israel is God saved them and he brought them out and they were his people. And I love you because I love you because I am faithful and I can do this. And they go, look at what we've done. Look at what we've built. Look at who we are. We have these laws and we're keeping them and we're keeping them better than those people over there. And look at what happened. They became arrogant. And we too are susceptible of the exact same thing when we forget that it's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but it is only by God's grace and mercy to us. But we can easily forget that. The deceitfulness of our heart wants to make it be about what we've done rather than who God is and what he's done. And so he says that right here in the middle in verse 20 of chapter 11. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. He says, don't you dare start to embrace an arrogance of look at what I've done. Because look at what I've done and being saved by the grace of God do not go together. It's not your doing. You weren't saved by works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so he's reminding us, he turns to the Israelites and goes, this is the history. I'm sorry, he turns to the Gentiles, says, this is the history of the Israelites. And don't you dare start to slip into the same thing. Now, I'd be remiss if I don't at least address this just real briefly. He does seem to say here, you're reading through and he says, if he doesn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you and don't fall away. And it sounds like, well, can we lose our salvation? Everything that we've just seen in chapter nine, that God is sovereign and he holds and he's going to bring it to completion. And I think the Bible talks in language like this, but if we're reading carefully and what it tells us, no, you're not going to lose your salvation. But there are sometimes people who deceive that think they are saved and they were never saved. And that's when we start to think it's what I've done. That means you don't understand the grace of God and what he's done for you. I'm a good person and I'm a good Christian and I go to church and I do this and I do that. And it's all about what you do rather than what God's done. And it's not that you were saved and then you lose your salvation. You never understood the grace of God that you've been saved by grace through faith and it's not your own doing. And so he tells us this. Do not become proud, but fear. And so here's the question I want us just to consider. I'm leaving a big section out there in the middle that we'll come back to, to really sharpen the point to this, how destructive pride is, 
how destructive arrogance is, how it does not go together with being saved by grace. So why spend the entire time on that? Well, I hope because it's there. It's in the Bible. It's very clearly he's, he's pointing us to that. And so we always want the, the word to stand over us. But why make it all this? And I think the answer is simply this. If we miss this, it is to our destruction. Personally, it's to our destruction as the church and our witness to the world watching. If we don't understand and we don't grasp and cling to right at the center of everything that we are saved by grace and it is God's doing and not ours and there is no place for arrogance, we are not showing people what God is like. We've shifted it from God's mercy and his doing and who he is to us. And it turns into this ugly thing. It very quickly turns into what C.S. Lewis says, where a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And I think this is so very important because that is what our world looks like more now than I think ever. It's not just in the church, it's in our country, it's in our world. I see it everywhere. Everyone wants to look down on everybody else because they don't have it right. My heart is broken with how many times in the last year I see on social media friends and acquaintances and friends of friends that I know claim to be Christians who post the ugliest, mean-spirited things that just look down on everyone else. How many times I see memes that say, takes a certain kind of stupid to believe X. As a Christian, do you not know, even if you're right, even if what you're saying is stupid, even if it is objectively false, When you say it like that, it's this arrogance and pride of, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. And as soon as we do that, we have forgot our standing before a holy God. We've forgotten that we stand by grace and grace alone. That person that believes whatever they believe that I think is wrong, and maybe it's morally wrong, and maybe it's directly against what God says. When I do that, I'm embracing this idea that I've somehow figured it out and look at how smart I am. No, I'm just like that person, but for the grace of God. And so when we slip into that type of thinking, when we start to feel a a feeling of satisfaction derived from look at what I've figured out, I'm no longer standing by grace. I've now become proud and arrogant. And I want to say to all of us, I feel it every day in my own heart. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I catch myself regularly. How can something, I go, oh, I'm doing it again. I need to be reminded of what Jesus has forgiven me and what he has done for me and who I am. I am standing by grace and grace alone. And so I want us just to end here with this. How does Jesus save us from this? It's something we all have to deal with. It's something that's in the deceitfulness of every one of our hearts. And so if you would, would you uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 for just a second? 
If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's 1028. And I just want to read for you this parable that Jesus tells at the end of Matthew chapter 18. Beginning in verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with a servant. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so I want us just to think about that. Maybe it's a familiar story. Two things just to point out. 10,000 talents that the first guy owes. It's the equivalent to hundred, I don't know, millions of dollars. A hundred lifetimes of wages. So whatever you'll make in this lifetime, multiply it times a hundred. That's what he owes. The other guy owes like a hundred dollars. So just the difference there. But the first guy who stands before the master in, in Jesus' parable is standing before God and he realizes that he has a debt that he will never ever begin be able to pay. In the holiness of standing before God, we recognize that we can never do it on our own. But then he gets up and he leaves and he immediately forgets who he is. He immediately forgets what he's been forgiven. And he goes out and he holds it over this other guy. You have to pay me, even though his debt is far greater than his own. And when I think about that story, the truth is every single one of us is the first guy. We all have a debt before the Lord that we can never, ever pay. That we can never, ever make up on our own. We can never stand before a holy God perfectly righteous. Right? That's exactly what we just said from, from Titus chapter 3. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but only by his mercy that we will ever be saved. And then he leaves and immediately forgets that and starts to look down on the other guy. Give me what you owe, pay me, owe me. And we do the same thing when we forget who we are in Jesus. And so I want you just to think about that parable and we'll, we'll end here. When he's standing before the master and he knows what he owes, there's no walking around going, look at what I'm doing. He is on his face pleading for mercy because he knows he can't do it. And the only thing he can rely on is the mercy of his master. 
And so I'd say to all of us, when we go out of this place and the things that we see in front of us, we're di- our, the way in which we respond to the people around us is going to be directly proportional to how we're seeing our relationship with our Father and what he's done for us in Jesus. When I'm clinging to him and I know that my only hope is by God's grace and what he's done for me, the idea that I'm not going to be gracious to other people doesn't make sense. But it's as soon as I forget and I start to attribute to myself and look at what I'm doing and look at what I've accomplished, that's when that starts to creep in. And so simply put, to stay in this humility, to guard our hearts against this, Jesus saves us, but we need to be seeking his face daily being reminded of our identity in him. And so that's why we say here all the time, being in community, growing in gospel fluency, reminding one another, confessing our sins, seeing those things because our heart is deceitful and we need to be reminded over and over and over again who we are in Jesus. Otherwise, arrogance creeps in and we make shambles before the world. We begin to look like everyone else instead of clinging to Jesus. The truth is we are just like everyone else and we desperately need Jesus moment by moment in everything. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious truth that you save us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but totally and fully by your grace to us. And so we thank you. We pray that when we forget that, that you would remind us, that you would continue to point us back to the good news of what you've done for us. I pray that when we start to slip into that kind of thinking, that we would have other believers in our life that speak the truth to us, that remind us of the good news, that remind us of who we are in you, that we are saved by grace and it's completely owing to you. I pray that we would do as Jesus calls us to, that we would forgive others the way in which we've been forgiven. We thank you. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.